Holy Communion by St. Peter Julian Emard. Continuing Chapter 44 Signs of the Spirit of Jesus Continuing the Second Sign The Complete Union of Our Will with Our Lord's When God makes His particular will known to us, we are ready and we do it. Whether nature inclines to it or finds it repugnant does not matter. We hear the divine command and we go to fulfill it. Our spiritual self will always be content whatever the good God asks of it. As for the natural self, we must subdue it by violence, for it must obey. If it will not go, it must feel the spur. If it finds you weak, it will throw you to the ground. If it feels your strength, it will obey in spite of itself. Then let us not fall into the error of always wanting to know what we shall have to do at such and such a time. No. Belong to God forever and ever. Never a free moment. There is none in heaven. Your rule doubtless prescribes different exercises at certain times, but in the intervals, be always at God's command. It is even imprudent to desire to foresee sacrifices which the good God does not for the moment require. That is wanting to fight without weapons. Wait till God asks those sacrifices of you, and He will give you grace for them at the same time. Let Him determine for you what you have to do. Keep within His divine will, and abandon whatever good works may appear outside that divine boundary. If the good God asks nothing of you, do nothing. If it is His will that you rest a while, sleep at His feet. 3. When does our Lord live in our heart? When our heart finds joy and happiness only in God. This joy is not always felt. It is often the joy of the cross. It is the joy of loving God above all else. For the heart, in the divine life, comes to the point of living more by suffering than by joy. We end by loving our suffering and our cross for love of God. To belong to God is what makes the heart joyful, even in suffering. It does not live in itself, but in God. It is not always easy to recognize whether our heart lives in God. In order that we may love more and more, God often permits our heart to be in darkness and to think it does not love enough. Then it is inclined to love and tries to love still more. Thinking it has not yet reached the mark, it endeavors to love twice as much. 4. But with regard to the mind, it is easier to tell, and even with certainty, when the mind lives in God. And the certainty of this supernatural life is itself proof that the heart and will are living by our Lord. For it is the mind which supplies the motives and thoughts which support both in the divine life. It is fuel to the fire. Now to have one's mind in God is to have the thought of God ever-present, ruling, sustaining, and fructifying. Do you habitually think of our Lord? If you do, He is in your mind and is living there. He lives there 
since he is there as lawgiver and as master. If the mind does not live in God and does not nourish the supernatural life, then the heart and the will possess that life only fitfully, by sudden starts. It is not firmly established and constant unless so nourished. Therefore, pious souls must read, meditate, lay up provision of light and strength. The more interior one's life is, the more one needs instruction, either from books, meditation, or from God himself. Thus it happens that the great crowd of Christians who never think are virtuous enough. But loving? No. There are childishly pious souls who never think of our Lord, excepting perhaps to imagine him fleetingly. One must keep such people busy with a host of devotional practices and little personal sacrifices. They do not know how to reflect. They think only of obtaining particular and momentary graces. They never think of our Lord himself, have no idea of asking for his love or for the grace of the interior life. They think only of good works, of God himself, the principle of his love, and his perfections, never. They do not rise very high. They are outside the supernatural life of the Spirit. Thus young girls who give evidence of angelic piety within their families become very ordinary Christians after they are married. And why? Their piety consisted wholly in outward practices of devotion, and these practices, having become impossible in their new state of life, their piety vanished. To change all this, our Lord must be known and loved in Himself. Then, whether we do this thing or that, we shall still love Him. The aspect, the outward appearance of our life changes, but our store of true inner life remains intact. Why do people not set about really loving our Lord for Himself? Ah, but our Lord is strict. He always demands something more. He is a fire that requires ever more fuel. People are afraid of our Lord, and that is why there are so few who hear the call to adoration. When piety is only a matter of devotional practices, people have fulfilled the law and are blameless once they have performed their duties. But with our Lord, one has never done enough. He asks more and more, and one has no right to stop. He has seemed to be so perfect, and one feels so far from ever resembling him. So the supernatural life may be measured thus. To what degree does our Lord live in you? Is he withdrawing from you, or is he entering even more fully into your being? You will know by the warmth or the coldness of your soul. Let us then attain to the life of abnegation. That is the life we must live, because it is the life of Jesus Christ in the most blessed sacrament, in which he never ceases to give himself, to spoil himself, and humble himself. Let our Lord alone live in us. In explaining the first sign of the supernatural life, I said that one must be strong against sin, strong against oneself. The milk of piety is not enough. Force is needed, 
and it is what assures our victory. Prolonged rest enervates, while exercise strengthens and hardens for battle. Piety which will not employ force, which does not arrive at force, is false piety. There is a brutal force which must be employed against the passions. It is not the force of reason. Whoever reasons with the tempter is already lost. Willingness to argue with him shows one must have some respect for him. This brutal force must be employed against oneself and against the world. It must be cruel, intolerant, as the religious life itself, which breaks off all intercourse with flesh and blood. Far be tolerance from us. No tolerance for the enemy. I came not to send peace but the sword, said the Savior, the sword of separation, which will set the son at variance against his father, the daughter against her mother, and man against himself. Jesus Christ first drew the sword against Pharisees, hypocrites, and sensualists. He cast it into the world, and Christians must seize it. A fragment is enough. Lay hold on it. This sword is well-tempered, tempered in the blood of Jesus Christ and in the fire from on high. The kingdom of heaven suffereth violence, and the violent bear it away. Jesus Christ wants for heaven violent, merciless men who will storm the walls, who are ready for anything, who will begin and keep up a war to the death, who will hate father, mother, family. Sin, I mean, not persons. War against self, against the seven capital sins in oneself or against the three concupiscences. It is all the same thing. One must cut clear to the heart, to the root, and there is never an end. A violent struggle is this. One is always having to start over again, and yesterday's victory gives no assurance for tomorrow. One day a conqueror, the next perhaps in chains. A little rest taken, that is enough to bring on defeat. Only those are victors who never cease from battle. Heaven must be stormed, taken by assault. Many people recognize what is good, but because they have not the courage to enter this combat, their life constantly contradicts their words. They are ruled by their passions. Thus Herod heard St. John the Baptist with pleasure, so long as the latter spoke to him of the kingdom of God in general. But as soon as the precursor rebuked him for his impure passion, he became furious, forgot everything, and went so far as to have the saint put to death. There are plenty of religious vocations out in the world, but the decisive blow must be struck, and people have not the courage. The fact is, this first battle is more difficult even than the final stroke of victory. Our nature is cowardly at bottom. All our vices are simply cowardice. And the proud boaster himself who is going to hew down the enemy at one blow is even more cowardly than anyone else. He is loaded with chains and wants to appear free without loosing himself from them. Yes, he is even proud of his slavery.
This has been taken from Holy Communion by St. Peter Julian Emard. This and other books by St. Peter Julian Emard, the Apostle of the Eucharist, are available through MMR Publishing. Call toll-free at 1-877-395-2320.